to them. And so we can read these and say, hey, these are people like us who gathered together to meet to try to put Jesus as king. What were they struggling with? What was he teaching them? What was a follower of Jesus trying to tell people right out of the shoot? Christ is risen. What are we doing with this? So that's why we're reading this. Before we get too far into it, we want to answer who was John. Uh, so this uh, today we're going to look at kind of two parts. We're going to spend a chunk talking about who was John, so we understand that, and then we'll come over here and we'll spend the rest of the chunk talking about 1 John chapter 1, and that's what we'll be doing today. So when we answer who was John, I think the reason this question matters is because understanding an author helps us understand context, and if you don't believe me, uh, then you should, because I'm the one that's standing up here. No, I'm just kidding. If you don't believe me, here's an analogy that might help. If you received a letter in the mail that was anonymous, you opened it, it had no name on it, it was just a letter handwritten to you, and it said, I love you. I've known you since you were a baby. You've always been so beautiful, and I've watched you as you sleep, and I miss you. If it was an anonymous letter, you'd be creeped out. Say, who is this weirdo that watches over me, that loves me? But then if you got the last page and it said, love mom, ah, now it's a very different letter, right? It's a different context. You're looking at me like this is weird. You guys have had a mother writing letters, right? You have someone who loves you. If it was anonymous, it'd be weird. Maybe that analogy is terrible, sorry. But understanding John helps us understand the context. So we're going to first ask, who was John? And I think it'd be fun in a uh, Baptist church that's been here 70 years. Some of you have been there a lot of those years. Just, just shotgun out at me. Who was John? What comes to mind? What do you know from Sunday school? Ah, the disciple Jesus loved. What else? Jesus' cousin? Ooh, yeah, we'll talk about that, right. Can you have a brother? James, yeah. Gosh, I'm excited. I'm going to talk about that here. That's exciting. All right, well, let's, let's go through this. Um, I'm going to start firing out a lot of verses. So if you're taking notes, then you can keep up with me, and you get a gold star for writing all these down. And maybe you write like this, or you are going to hammer it in on a scroll. I don't know who writes like this. But um, one of the things we see about John first is that he was a part of Jesus' inner circle. You have who? Peter? James and John, right, they're part of Jesus' inner circle. And I think it's interesting to consider, sometimes we think they get special treatment because they were special. Sometimes I think it's interesting to consider, maybe they were special because they were bad. Like, they were the first ones called, and Jesus keeps giving them special attention, and all three of them do pretty ridiculous things in the Gospels. And so maybe Jesus needed to give them special attention, not because they had this great leadership right from the shoot, but because they were the bad kids. Uh, I'm not saying that's exactly what's there, but I think it's interesting, and we'll get more into that. But Peter, James, and John are first called when they're fishing. They've got this uh, family business, they're all fishing. If you remember the story in Luke 5, then um, they're casting out their nets, and they're getting how many fish? None, right? And Jesus comes and he says, hey, cast out your nets on the other side. And they're like, why would we do that, Jesus? In their best Brooklyn accent. Like, why? Well, that's ridiculous. We've been fishing all night, Jesus. And he says, do it. And so they do. They throw their nets on the other side. And what, what happens? They can't pull in all the fish, right? Peter loses his mind and says, man, I'm a sinner. I'm unclean. You must be the Lord. Like, fish was enough for Peter, right? And he's lost now. And then it says, right, in verse uh, Luke 5, verse 11, uh, when Jesus says, Don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. I'll make you fishers of men. Verse 11 in Luke. And when they had uh, brought their boats into land, they left everything and followed him. We don't have time to overemphasize how ridiculous this is for their culture, but they pretty much just committed social suicide. They said, hey, everything that we could bank on in life, we're giving it up for this poor prophet that just gave us a whole bunch of fish. And so they do. They gave up everything. What that says about John's character is that he's committed for a person. He is a zero or a hundred person, on or off. He's ready to go. He's ready to rock. 
Also, you see Peter, James, and John, they see the transfiguration of Jesus. Again, a big moment where Jesus is declaring, like, hey, I'm up here. I'm not Moses or Elijah, but I'm with them and I'm connected with them. Big deal, they see that. They're the only ones who see Jairus' daughter healed in Luke 8. Uh, and then when Jesus takes his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he dies, right? He brings all the disciples, but he takes Peter, James, and John with him and says, hey, pray, be here with me, right? So he's a part of this special group. James and John, though, they were also called the Sons of Thunder. You've got to say it like that, right? It's exciting. The Sons of Thunder. And you see why. We're going to get into that. But I mean, you should, you should imagine like this tag team guys that are like bros that are like, the Sons of Thunder. And who gives them that nickname? Jesus. Does anyone know that nickname in Greek? No, okay. I gave him such a hard time. Uh, at the risk of being a Bible nerd, I'm not going to say the word because that makes me look kind of pretentious. I'm going to play it on my phone because, uh, because that's more fun. Oh, no. Hold on. Charles G. 993. Bottom of that case. Bottom of that case. Bottom of case. That is Sons of Thunder. Jesus gives them that name. Why? Why does Jesus give them that name? Well, because they're zealous dudes. They're ambitious, they're excited, and they do some really boneheaded things. Things that us church people would be like, man, that's stuff that like children do. How are you so stupid? You sons of thunder, right? And so one of the stories that I love about this is in Luke 9. So uh, there's this story where Jesus, he's about to die, he knows he's going to be taken up to heaven. Jesus decides uh, that he's going to set out for Jerusalem, and it says, uh, Luke 9, verse 52, he sent out messengers on ahead who went into Samaritan village to get things ready for him. Samaritans, no, no, right? They separated from Jews, they did their own thing, they've got their own sort of religion. You guys know the story of the woman of the well. Samaritans are bad. Don't touch them, stay away from them. It's bad folk, we don't like them, right? So uh, Jesus goes to Samaritan village, and with the people there, they didn't welcome Jesus because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? Right? I just I'm trying to imagine the situation, because it's such a funny story to me. Jesus, this is near the end of his ministry. He's got these brothers with him that have been following him. They've done these special things. They've seen Christ do these things. And then they're about to go into Samaria, uh, go through there, and the Samaritans don't accept Jesus. And their first response, instead of, Lord, should we pray for them? Should we serve them? Should we wash their feet? No, no, no. They say, should we call down fire? They don't even ask Jesus to do it. They don't ask God to do it. They assume that they have sons of thunder. God, should we call down fire to destroy them? It's such a funny story to me. And Jesus' response is to rebuke them. And it's, it's left at that. It's simple. No. You know, it's just a simple, like, no, that's, we don't even need more words in the Bible. That's so dumb. No, Jesus rebukes it. Sons of thunder. There's another time that they wanted to command Jesus to give honor for themselves. This story's great. It's in Mark 10. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they came up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. I'm going to read that again, because they're talking to Jesus. Cast out demons, calms the storm. This is what they say to Jesus, the sons of thunder. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. And Jesus said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism in which I am baptized? 
Jesus is saying, uh, these are both uh, Jewish analogies to drink a cup. Uh, there's reminiscence of a, a wedding ceremony. Are you willing to fully commit to this baptism to align with a mission? Jesus is saying, hey, can you guys actually commit to what you're asking? Can you be like me? Can you commit to these awful, difficult, challenging things? And then they say, we are able. Right? They're able. Of course they are. Because they're tag team brothers. They can do everything. And Jesus goes on to say, whoever would be great among you must be a servant. And whoever would be first among you must be a slave for all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. So James and John were these intense guys. They're zealous. They're ambitious. But specifically John, he was known as, when you guys said it, what, the disciple? Jesus loved. He loved this son of thunder that wants to call down fire on people and command Jesus to do what he wants. Like just, it's absurd to me how these things happen. But uh, we see in a couple places in John 13, he's the one reclining on Jesus' chest, right, at the Passover ceremony. You let your friend sit right next to you. If Nikki and I go out to eat, she sits next to me. If all of us went out to eat, then the one who sits next to me I probably like better, which will always be Nikki, because I like her best. That's my wife, if you don't know Nikki. Right? She sits next to me. Or maybe one of my kids. Right? But this is the disciple Jesus loves, so he sits next to him. Right? They have this relationship. More intently, Jesus gives John his mother. This is a big deal. Anyone who has kids, any mothers in here, hear this, right? We've got three sons, right? Jesus is on the cross. He's hanging there. He's bleeding. He's about to die. And he looks down, right? And let's say, John 19. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sisters, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. This is Jesus' best friend, his BFF. He loved him. He gives him his mother. There's no one in this room that is easily giving their mother away to someone they don't know, right? If you're giving your mother away, it's because it's the best friend, someone you trust, right? Uh, moving on, John was later known as a pillar in the early church. Galatians 2 tells us that. He ministered with Peter. We see that all through Acts. Uh, James, his brother, sons of thunder, he was the first apostle to be martyred, had his head cut off, right? Interesting. Now, we don't have time to say that connection, but I think it's interesting that these sons of thunder, these ambitious guys that want to sit next to Jesus, James is the first one to die, and guess who the last one to die is? John. Isn't that interesting? Man, I don't know all the implications there, but I was moved by that this morning. I was reading that. Man, they want to sit next to Jesus, and Jesus says, that's foolish. You've got to serve me. James dies first. John dies last. Right? Christian history tells us that John was boiled, right? Uh, when, he was, uh, when he was being uh, persecuted, John was boiled. In some places in uh, uh, parts of Christian history say it was boiled and he was boiled in, right? So fried John is what's happening here. He survives. So imagine the scarring of fried human is surviving. And then Rome says, we can't get this guy to quit talking about Jesus. Get him out of here. So they exile him to where? Patmos, right? And what happens on Patmos? Revelation! His best friend comes and visits him. Who visits John? Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Jesus visits him and then he gets all these, uh, he gets the apocalypse and he writes the book of Revelation. John is a guy that starts out a son of thunder, right? I can think about these. He's got a brother that looks just like him. And I imagine they would beat their chest and be sons of thunder, maybe. But starts out as sons of thunder, right? They do all these ambitious, ignorant things like, can we cast fire down on people? We're going to do it. Let me tell you how to live our life, Jesus. And then there's this turn. John's only gospel that talks about Jesus washing feet. 
servant language. And then John, later in his life, when he's an old man, he writes 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and he uses language like, I know children, I write to you so you don't sin. It's a very different language than, can you cast fire down on them? Right? I love you. Very loving, intimate book. If you've read 1st John, you know it's a very loving, intimate, fatherly sort of book. Right? What we can learn from John's life is that because he met Jesus, Jesus took this maybe arrogance, this ambition, this passion, this zeal, and Jesus turned it into something that was zealous and meaningful, tempered with love and service. Because power, ambition, zeal, all those things are good things, but they're only meaningful if they're tempered by love and service. Right? So we learn that from John's life. We're going to read 1 John now. So if you want to flip in your Bibles to 1 John, uh, kind of the uh, pattern for every week is uh, Adam and I, as we're up here, we're going to read a chunk of 1 John, uh, and then from that, we'll uh, have some words to say about it, we'll do our invitation, and then we'll have Tony Evans talk to us a little bit about it, and we'll go in our life groups. Because during this time, we want to emphasize this Fall Fellowship series, where we have life groups, and we share life together. We can't go at this alone. We need each other. And so we're going to sit in life groups to share this life and talk about these things together. If you would, as you turn to 1 John, would you stand with me and honor God's word? We're going to read 1 John chapter 1. Tony Evans goes a little further than that. We're just going to read chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus. And we are writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. You guys can be seated. We're going to mainly focus on one concept in here. Um, there's, there's quite a few things in here. Uh, we might get to, but the main thing we want to talk about is this verse 9. Does anyone here have verse 9 memorized? You're just like, in your mind, this is like your go-to. I memorized this verse when I was in 1st John 1 9 Bible Drillers. Does anyone raise your hand if you know Bible Drillers? Is that just me? Okay, good. Dana's like my Baptist cohort. She knows, like, oh, Baptist, I got it. I was there. So in Bible Drillers, as a child, I would have to stand with my Bible and they'd say, attention, present Bible, whatever, whatever they'd say, Amos. And you'd all really don't know why they call it Amos. And then you'd have to find it in step four. And the last person in step four got kicked in the face. No, whatever. I don't remember what happened, but they lost. And I won every time, by the way. I have two certificates for Bible drillers, but I remember the memorization the best um, because I could separate say, because there's been faithfulness, forgiveness, and cleanse from righteousness. And as a you know eight, nine, ten year old, the faster you said it, the cooler you were. So it's like you didn't have to give the words right. But I don't know. And I remember in high school I would quote that verse to people as a way to justify my sin. 
So like, people would call out in high school that I was a hypocrite, right? Because I was. I was an awful guy in high school, worse in college. And people call it out, and I'd say, oh, we're gonna our sins, we're gonna mess with our right? Because uh, it made me feel better about myself. That was, that's an aside, that's something in my notes. But anyway, uh, more about how awful I am later. But uh, I want us to hit that point for a second, because I think that verse is what we want to focus on. And I'm going to say it real slow, because I want us to catch something that maybe we miss. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Who's John writing to? A church. He's writing to a church. If you know anything about Christian history, the majority of Christian history, then you would have someone stand up, they would read the words of God, oftentimes Psalms, Isaiah, um, these letters that were written, and that would be it. They'd eat a meal together, and they'd leave. Man, our church service would be a lot longer if that's what we did. Uh, but we get food every time. So. Uh, but that's what they would do. They would read the words of God. They would believe the words of God are being put over you. We sometimes miss that the words of God are being spoken over us because we have a Bible everywhere we look, right, in all our pockets, on our apps. But these are the words of God. And John was writing this to a church. And this is important now because he's saying if we confess our sin. Wait a minute. Now sin is a corporate problem. This is corporate confession. This is an entire body realizing that we have responsibility for sin. Not David. Because this is how I read it. If David confesses David's sin and God who's faithful will forgive David of his sin and cleanse David from all unrighteousness. That's how we read that. Right? And it's not that that's not there. We'll get there. Right? But John's original audience would have heard this as if we confess our sin. Why? Because his original audience were Jews. We all know that the Jews understood that one person's sin wrecked everybody. Everyone was affected by one person's sin because that happened all through the Bible. One person or a small group did something wrong, everybody has to wander for another 40 years or whatever. Just everything gets worse. Uh, story of Joshua 7, Achan, right? He takes stuff for himself, buries it, he's got the treasure, and then what happens? They lose the battle. <laughs> Right? Joshua weaves, tears off his clothes, and God's anger, it says his, his rage burns against Israel. Because one guy stole stuff. One guy messed up everything. And so the Jews had this passionate belief. One person sins, everyone sins. And it's not just Old Testament. New Testament, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5, he's talking about sexual immorality in the church. I won't tell you the specific. You can read it yourself. It's awkward. It would make children have weird questions later. But there's a part in 1 Corinthians 5 where Paul's talking about this, and Paul doesn't condemn just the sinners. Who else does he condemn? The church. He talks about cutting the leaven out. Stop this. Get away from this sin. It's not just these sinners, but it's also the church's responsibility. Why? Because we're one body. You read again, when Paul talks in Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4, especially in 1 Corinthians 12, we're one body. Everyone's sin affects everyone else. So we can't sit in here and pretend that your sin isn't affecting everyone around you because we're all connected as one body, right? So there's this concern that sin is rippling through everything. So we want to talk today about why we confess. Why is there an emphasis on if we confess our sins? Two reasons why we confess. The first one is because we need each other. We are one body. We suffer together. We get this, of course, when we have tragedies happen. If someone goes to the hospital, we're all going to pray for them. We're all going to surround them. If someone has a baby, we're going to make meals for them. We're going to do everything we can to hold the baby because we want to hold babies. We all have baby fever. We suffer together in that way. It's not really suffering, I guess, figuring anything about babies. But we also, right, we do the same thing with sin because we're one body. Bonhoeffer, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, was a famous pastor. And uh, he had this plot to kill Hitler. Um, a lot of interesting stuff. But Bonhoeffer wrote a book um, in the World War II 
time period called Life Together. Uh, I really love this book, Life Together. It's an honest look at how we should live together, how we should live as Christians. And one of my favorite quotes in that book goes like this. He says, The Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. For by himself, he cannot help himself without delaying the truth. He needs his brother man as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. He needs his brother solely because of Jesus Christ. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brothers. Hear that again. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brothers. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's heart is sure. What is this saying? First of all, he's talking to all people. He's not just writing to men and brothers, right? This is the 1940s. We'll, we'll be okay with that. He's writing to everyone, right? So you can your sisters in there as well, so if your girl don't, you know, check out, right? So he's saying, like, the reason we confess to each other is because we need each other. When I come to John, I say, John, I got this thing I'm doing. I'm really messed up. I keep acting this way. I'm going to try to make it this big because I know David. And I want David to be awesome. I want John to think David's a schmuck. So I tell John this much confession. But because John knows the truth and he's not biased to my sin, he doesn't have any stake in the game for me. He knows what's true. He knows Jesus Christ. And he can speak into my life and help me acknowledge, no, your sin is like this. Your sin has this much weight. It's hurting your family. It's hurting your kids. It's hurting the church. And so he can speak truth in love because he's not biased by my flesh. We confess corporately because we need each other. We need each other because no one lies to you more than you lie to you. Because you think you're awesome. You think everything's fine. We're all trying to just, yeah, we're okay. We're good. This is no big deal. You know, I scream at the kids every now and then. Man, I'll never forget when I had to confess to a close brother of mine. I was in a uh, uh, dating relationship that was super damaging for a long time, and I was engaged to this guy. And I was fighting hard to make this marriage work, this relationship work, and it clearly was going south. And I, I vividly remember when I was honest, I was sitting in the middle of my parents' backyard, and I called them on the phone, and I opened up everything about our, uh, our awful, simple relationship, uh, the times that we yelled at each other, broke things, punched her car, uh, gosh, the, the sexual relationship we had, I just confessed everything. And I'll never forget his words to me. In truth and in love, he said, you will spend the rest of your life trying to make this relationship work. And it will never work if you keep going the way you're going. And then he more encouraged me with scripture. We looked at John 15. Uh, what bears good fruit, what bears bad fruit, these sort of things. And I realized, I don't need to be in this relationship. And it was hard, it was awful, it was difficult to cut it off. Right? But then eventually I met Nikki, and things are going pretty well now. I'd say pretty great. This is what abundant life looks like. And that confession was very difficult for me, but because I confessed it to him, then I was able to have some sort of healing. James 5.16 says, uh, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you'll be healed. So that you'll be healed. When we confess to each other, right, then we're all of a sudden looking honestly at each other. We're not biased by our own flesh because we need each other. We can refine each other. And then it doesn't say confess your sins to one another and go on. No, it says confess your sins, James 5, 16. Confess your sins and pray for one another. Because when we pray together, then all of a sudden we have to stand before God and realize we are both sinful. There's nothing before us that's better here. You confess to me, Lee, that's great. I don't get to say, I'm better than you because I don't struggle with you. No, no, no. We say, we're going to pray because God is above us. And we recognize we need Him. And then we have healing through that. We confess because we need each other. The second reason we confess is because it humbles us. Here's the truth, and you hear this a lot. We've all sinned. Everyone in this room sins. Turns out, you can't get away from it. We all do things that displeases God. If you think you haven't sinned, read the Ten Commandments. You won't get very far, right? Every one of us has sinned. 
But when we confess as a body, all of a sudden, we're able to be humbled together, to realize that we're not in a room full of how awesome David is and how cool uh, uh, other people are. Um, Sarah, man, I was trying to use your name. I couldn't think of it off the top of my head. I was going to say Shelby, but that's your daughter's name. We're not in a room full of how awesome each of us are and we level each other out. No, we're in a room full of wretched people who need to save. And how much more beautiful is it to come together and worship humbly because we've corporately confessed and understood that each one of us, before a perfect God, is sinful and separate, and the only thing we have is Him. We can't emphasize this point enough, right? How much more beautiful is our worship when we stand and we sing songs like, I believe in God, I believe in your holy church, I believe in the virgin birth, I believe. We say these things because as a body, we realize that none of us are awesome. None of us are great. None of us are better than anyone else. We all need Jesus. I vividly remember when I was uh, first experienced a worship like this. It was at a church called Church Army. Uh, is anyone familiar with Church Army? What that means? Nikki is. She was there with me. Church Army is a church full of alcohol, alcoholics and addicts, um, recovery folk. I have never experienced power in worship than when we go to Church Army. We drive to Branson. My sister was there. She was recovering alcoholic. And man, uh, they would sometimes sing uh, Rich Mullins' Awesome God. This lady would romp on the piano and she'd like hit this like read the framing voice when he runs up his knees. Oh, it was intense. But the way these people worshipped, they all worshiped because every one of them would introduce themselves by saying, Hi, I'm David, I'm an alcoholic. They understood that they were not justified by their sin, but it was a meaningful part of who they were, and it separated them from God. And when they worshiped together, there was no one there that was better than anyone else. It was powerful, it was beautiful. We confess because it humbles us. When did we start believing as Christians that all of Christianity is about sinning less? More importantly, hiding our sin, appearing to look like we don't sin. Are you not as exhausted as I am at this cultural hiding game that we do inside these Christian bubbles where we all believe that we need to trade sins for others that are easier to hide? And so, oh man, I don't want people to know about affairs, so I'll get more into pornography. And I don't want people to know that I hit my kids, so I'll just start yelling at them louder. All these things that we trade because we want to be able to be in church and say, I'm fine, we're good. Good. It's exhausting. Maybe, maybe you can't empathize, but without understanding the grace of God, these things start wrecking us. Think about this. What if right now your deepest, darkest sins, the ones that you're trying to hide, you don't even know these thoughts that you have that are awful, what if they just started playing on this screen? I couldn't stop it. Wade couldn't stop it. He's all trying to pull the plugs. And they're just playing on this screen, and everyone knows how awful you are. If that happened to me, I'd be gone. You guys would ask me to leave. You'd know all my thoughts. You'd know all my secret sin. You'd know the things in my head that I try to pray that don't go away. You know, keep coming up. And all of a sudden, all I would have to say is, Jesus must be real. Jesus' death and sacrifice must be that much greater because I don't have any way to hide anymore. And then worship becomes legitimate. Confession becomes real because I'm confessing before God who loves me and redeems me. We confess because it humbles us. Do you see the reality in the way of your sin? Are you walking around in this realm of hypothetical sin? We all do this. Uh, I've heard this quote a lot. Uh, uh, yeah, we're, we're all sinners saved by grace. We're all sin. Man, you sin, I sin, we all sin. And I'm saved by grace, Jesus loves me. But you can't honestly point at one real sin that you struggle with that has separated you from God. If you have hypothetical sin in your life, I guarantee you have a hypothetical sin. But if you have real sin in your life, then all of a sudden your Savior must be real. You must have to come real before Father and really be broken and really bow before Him and wipe His feet with your tears and say, I need you because I don't have anything else. And I think so often we've locked in this culture game of hiding our sin and sowing the suit of fig leaves so everyone thinks that we're fine. 
that we miss having a real Savior. Charles Spurgeon said, if your sin is small, then your Savior is small. But if you have great sin, then you must have a great Savior. And I'm here to tell you that we have a great Savior. Amen? Amen. Therefore, you have great sin. Quit hiding from it. Here's the truth. God is light. That's something John's going to emphasize over and over and over. Look at verses 5. He says, John 1, 5, This is the message that we have heard and proclaimed to you. God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk, uh, if we say we fellowship with Him we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with Him. True community is what that word means. Meaningful, intimate connection with God. Fellowship with Him, with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. John gets at this differently in John 3, right? Because this son of thunder, he wrote another book called the book of John, right? All his books have his name except for Revelation. In John 3, he says this, you might have heard this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. Here it is, verse 19. John 3, verse 19. This is the judgment. Some translations say verdict, which sounds better. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light. Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. And does not come to the light because their works will be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes into the light, so they may be clearly seen that his work have been carried out in God. Some translations say they have been wrought with God, made right with God. Jesus is the light, and he exposes us. We don't like that. We want to live in the darkness. We want to hide our sin. We want to hide from each other. We want to look like we're good enough because this is Western America, and we're awesome, and we've got it all figured out. But God is exposing me over and over and over. Jesus knows you. You stand exposed before him right now. He knows these deepest, darkest secrets that you want to hide. He knows these things that make you not want to make eye contact with me right now. I don't want to make eye contact with you because we're talking about sin and it's awkward, so I bounce my eyes all over the room. Jesus knows these things about you. And he loves you, and he's committed to you, and he wants to have a right relationship with you through Jesus. I'm going to ask that the band come and play. In John... Uh, the end of John, uh, actually right at the beginning of John 2, verse 1 and 2, John writes this again. This is where you get this fatherly loving language. It says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. Writing these things to see no sin, but when you do sin, because we do sin, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Are you a real sinner today? Do you have things that maybe you don't want to confess, or is your life floating around this hypothetical idea of Christianity, this hypothetical state? Because if you're a real sinner, then you have real sin, and those confessions need to happen. And I can't encourage enough the freedom that you find when we confess our sins and we pray for one another so that we may be healed. 
And so as we move into a time of response, right? We're gonna have a few moments where the band plays, and then we're gonna sing a song, and the lights will be dark, we're gonna stand up like we always do. But some of you are sitting there, and God's working on you. Because it's no accident that you're here, God brought you here, and he's moving in your heart right now to say, there are things that are unconfessed, and you're separate from me, and I love you, and I want a relationship with you. And he says, if you confess your sins, I will forgive you, and I will cleanse you. You have a real relationship with me, real fellowship. That's what Jesus wants right now. Some of us, maybe just, uh, we followed Christ for a while, and we feel distant from God. Because we have unconfessed sins, we have things that we're hiding. There's things that are in your mind right now. When I talked about that video playing, you said, oh my gosh, what, what do I have to hide from? Right? You're in that situation where you don't ever want your kids or your wife to come up to you and say, what have you been doing? Oh gosh, you don't want that to happen. Because you know what's inside you. You're afraid. God says come and confess. Confess with each other so that you'll be healed, so that you'll be forgiven. So as we have this time of response, this is a time for confession. There's uh, some stairs up here. There's an altar up front. You can come and confess here. Right? Bring friends with you. Confess together. You can come as a family. You can come as a Sunday school class, as a collection of people who know each other. Maybe just yourself is burdened and you want to confess where you're at. But if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And until you are a real sinner with real sin, then you'll just be a hypothetical sinner with hypothetical sin. So as God moves in your heart right now, think about what it means to confess. What is God calling for confession in your life? What is God calling for confession in our church? Because God is light, and Jesus will expose you. He will expose our church, because he says all things will come into the light. And as a loving father, he wants us to come into the light. I don't want my kids to do foolish things for very long. My wife doesn't let me do foolish things for very long because she loves me. Thank God that he's convicting you right now. Thank God that he wants to expose you. If we confess. Let's pray. We're going to move into a time of response. We'll be up here to pray with you. Others would be love to pray with you. So take time to confess. God, thank you for this day that we get to share this time together. Lord, I don't know all the ways that you're moving. I know the conviction that comes in my heart of the way confession plays out and the healing that you bring, but the natural bent that I have to want to be in the darkness so that I'm not exposed. And I pray right now that you would set us free, Jesus, that, that all the darkness that is in our church, that is in our own personal lives, any place that we're trying to hide, that you would, your spirit would move and that we wouldn't let our culture, our arrogance, our pride, Satan, anything keep us from running to you and bowing before you as our Father and receiving your love and grace and forgiveness. Help us to believe all the more that we confess our sins, you will forgive us, and you will cleanse us from unrighteousness. Because you're our advocate, you love us. Our prayer right now that you move as we worship you. We thank you for all the things that you're doing in our body, in our personal lives. Amen.